Hi, it's Joanna Oka here and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we have on the show Simon Clatworthy from Start Your Earnout Now, who is going to talk to us all about the concept of remuneration of your staff and what on earth that has to do with selling your business. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. So, Simon, thank you so much for coming on board to chat to us today. You're welcome. Great. Okay, let's start off with why we're talking about this topic. What on earth (laughs) does remuneration of staff have to do with selling a business? I think it's probably fair to say it's not the first thing that business owners think of when they're looking at selling their business. No, and I think that's fair. I think the first thing that a business owner will think of when they're looking to sell their business is what's my profit or my my EBIT, my earnings before interest and tax, because that's what most people think of when they're looking to do business, taking that value and multiplying it by some deemed market multiple to the right price. But if we then take a step back from there and say, what is the driver of that profitability, if you like, and invariably your team and your staff are one of your core assets, and you need to ensure that they are being appropriately remunerated prior to sale and post-sale to ensure that your key staff remain with the business after you sell it. And my experience has obviously always been the case that risk purchasers say, what and how are you going to ensure that your team that I'm going to acquire are going to stay with me after you've gone and you've sold the business? Yeah, it's a really good point. It's interesting that you say this because I have a sale matter sitting on my desk right now that just came in this morning where one of the key terms I can see the buyer is after is a warranty from the seller in relation to the period of time that the staff will say. And it's a little bit scary for a seller at that point to then realize that they are exposed to the extent that their staff may not stay on board. So the buyer's issue also becomes the seller's issue in that sense. So I think it's really topical. And certainly I've seen many transactions suffer problems where staffing hasn't been considered early enough and staff are viewed to be an important function of the value in the business. I agree with that. And I think it even goes right back to actually the the building blocks of what makes up an employee's remuneration. And that's why I talk about this concept of strategic remuneration whether you're buying or selling a business. I think strategic remuneration to me, just very simply insofar as a definition, is the alignment of employee remuneration with the goals and aspirations of the business. I think traditionally family-owned businesses in particular go to market and say, or they might go to a HR consultant and say, what's the median or the middle price band that I need to pay to get someone in this role. And they'll just go and pay that person a fixed salary. And then the person comes on board. There's no flexibility in and around good performance, bad performance, other than performance management with regards to the way in which you reward or not an employee where to me, a strategic remuneration component then comes in when we break the constituent parts of remuneration up between fixed remuneration being the base salary, benefits, superannuation and the likes, and the variable piece. The variable piece traditionally would be called an incentive or a bonus. Family-owned businesses are very good at giving 
Christmas bonuses, discretionary bonuses. To me, that's not strategic at all because that's just sort of a, to give someone something. There's no correlation to that figure to a specific objective or set of criteria that has been achieved. Yeah. And look, I think one of the objections that I hear sometimes in relation to using incentives or whatever you want to call them as part of a package is number one, the staff concern over how that's going to be calculated and and how much they can rely on that. Because I guess it's really important if you want to incentivize staff in the right way that they feel that there are parameters that are within their control and that they are actually going to get, <laughs> you know, the, the incentives at the end of the day. I think there there's a real feeling around in terms of staff as a whole that incentives aren't actually part of the remuneration. They're just a bonus that they hope they get in many instances. So how do you deal with that component? You, you then come back to this whole concept of the alignment between the variable remuneration component and what the company's trying to achieve as a whole. You would normally create what I would, the alignment between the profitability of the organization normally has a driver in it as well. And so what I'm trying to do when I develop these remuneration schemes is to ensure that the employees get rewarded for the value that gets created within the organization such that they get rewarded if the value of the business goes up or the profitability goes up, there's a co-sharing environment. Can you give me an example of where you've seen this work really well? I've seen it work very well in the majority of the clients that I design it for. I can think of an engineering company, which we put an incentive scheme in place. We replaced a discretionary bonus and financial model, which we said, if we have a certain operating profit, definitive value and an operating profit to revenue number, there would be a certain, there was a calculation which was overt and everyone in the team were able to see what the calculation was. And we illustrated to them to say for each incremental dollar of EBIT or operating profit that was an employee pool, whether you were deemed to be great, good or average as a performer based on a predetermined set of measurable performance criteria, you got a different rating, which then gave you varying levels of pro rata allocation into that profit pool. We did that and we saw the company improve its performance in the first year by 20%. Was that as a direct result of the incentive scheme? I don't think you can say that it was a silver bullet, but certainly it did result in the employees becoming far more aware of what actions they could take, which resulted in the profitability of the business being improved and revenue growing. The real driver or the real key to successful incentive schemes is making sure the employees understand what they need to do, what buttons to push, what levers to pull to get that improved performance, which gives an increase of payable to the employees or participants, if you like. And I guess implicit in all of this appears to be that the employees then are aware of the objective of the owner in selling the business and are brought along on that journey and participating in that journey. Is, is that right? I think what we've spoken about before doesn't necessarily have to correlate to a business being sold. But obviously, if you've got a well-functioning business with a, a nicely aligned remuneration plan for the employees, it goes hand in hand to suggest that we should have a more, more valuable business. And we've got a, a system and a scheme in place such that when the business does get sold, there's a scheme that's already in place and through law, an employee can't get reemployed on terms and conditions any less favorable. So the scheme has to have either longevity to go into a new owner's environment 
environment or another scheme needs to be created such that they're no worse off financially. Right, I see. So you're talking about this in terms of you're not necessarily linking it to an actual sale that's achieved. You're just linking it to the value of the business or the growth in the value of the business at the time. Correct. But obviously, if we're then readying the business for sale, we can belay an additional component to the variable remuneration component, which says if we do sell the business, we can give a percentage of the business back to a number of or a a pool of employees such that the value that's been added to during that period and upon the realisation event occurring, there's a pool of money which gets made available to them. And the other part that I think really dovetails beautifully in this business sale component is if you like the retention bonus, which says I do sell the business and there's a requirement for you to stay for a minimum of 12 to 18, 24 months. I being the owner of the business, even though I've sold it, will ensure that at the end of that period, there's an additional amount of money that is available to you. And I had two transactions in the last year where the buyer has demanded as a condition of sale that in one transaction, it was 8%. In the other transaction, it was 10% of the sale value was made available as a a retention payment to the key people that needed to stay within the business. Obviously, the action stay for a period of time anyway. So of that 5 and 10%, half of that was going to the owners. The other half was going to a number of key executives. That's really interesting. We've seen this operate successfully quite a few times as well. One of the examples that comes to mind of where I saw it work particularly successfully for when we were acting for a buyer. So coming from a buyer's perspective, in this particular instance, we're acting for an offshore buyer who was looking to enter into a market in Australia. And so to do that, they did that via acquisition. And because they were offshore, it was incredibly important to them that there was a continuity of the team here in the Australian firm that they were acquiring, particularly for at least that first 12-month period. And so, So what the seller had done, he had set up this remuneration strategy for the key staff that incentivized them throughout the sale in relation to a successful transaction and staying on post-transaction for, I can't recall now, I think it was around about 12 months. But the benefit of that was, you know, our client clients sitting in the position as buyers, you know, really helped them. I could see how it impacted them throughout the transaction because it really gave them a lot of comfort. And when roadblocks occurred, you know, it happens that bumps occur in in all deals to some degree or another. But when bumps occurred, this assurance that they had in relation to staff retention, because of the way the incentives were built, was really something that worked well for them. And so therefore, it worked really well for the seller as well, because it saved the deal at times when there were issues that had appeared. So I've seen other organisations tried as well, and sometimes it not work so well. So I do think to some degree, it depends on how well you set it up. I think the other interesting component of it is this this component as to whether or not it's linked to uh, business performance as a whole or whether the seller is being really clear with the team about what their objectives are in building to a sale and then transition post-sale. Because in this environment that I'm talking about, there was a lot of clarity for the whole team about what the owner was doing in terms of selling. And I felt that that really helped the transition occur really well in that instance. And I think this whole purpose 
of transparency, openness, honesty plays a big part in, uh, in all forms of remuneration. Because what the owner of the business is saying, I'm happy to share some of the, the proceeds from sale with you and recognize that you're an integral part of the transaction. And not only do you get a piece of the transaction on sale, in the event, and this is where it comes in nicely into this horrible territory of earnouts, I'll give you a piece of the earnout as well. So the more I get out of the earnout, the more you get as well. So the employees then become very much aligned to ensuring that the business continues to perform as best as possible during that post-sale period and such A, they need to stay and secondly, if there is a performance matrix put in place in and around post-sale consideration, i.e. earn out being paid, the employees that are staying there are incentivized on top of what they normally would be to ensure that the earn out becomes payable. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I guess the one thing that we should mention in doing this is there might also be taxation elements to consider. So, of course, you have to be clear about who has the obligation for payment and if that is the seller themselves to the extent that it's connected to them getting the earn out then you just have to be careful how that works because the seller may not want to be in the position where they're paying tax and then you're gifting the funds so there's all of those sorts of things to get your head around as well yeah and tax is a, is a very important consideration in any transaction but what I have tended to do in the past which works quite well with these sort of earn out aligned incentives is put into the agreement what percentage of the earnout is available to the remaining employees such that the purchaser then pays it. So rather than it going to the seller of the business and then him having to pay when they're no longer his employees, the buyer is paying it by deducting what otherwise would have gone to the employees. So the vendor of the business gets, let's say, 80% of the earnout and then 20% obviously gets paid by the buyer, he would have been paying that amount anyway, but rather than going to the seller, it goes to the remaining employees. And I guess from a legal perspective, the sorts of things that we'd look at there is who are we actually, sometimes this is set up better as then something from the employing entity directly with the staff to the degree it can be to reduce the number of parties that we have to include direct contractual relationship with. So there's all sorts of considerations here, I guess we're saying, Simon. (laughs) Absolutely. Indeed it is. And you know, I think why I like these sort of post-sale incentives is it gives the buyer greater comfort that he's actually going to, he or she is going to retain the services of those employees, executives moving forward because they're incentivized to stay. And as per my example, you know, that really, I think that that has a lot of cut through for many buyers in terms of them having something that they can rely on in terms of key staff retention over that critical transition period, initial operation period post-completion. Indeed. Good. All right. Well, look, I think we have covered some really useful topics here today, Simon. Is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with uh, to think about? I mean, being sort of a short discussion about what is quite a complex area, but what are the action items that you would be suggesting and how soon before sale should businesses be thinking about it? Although I guess you'd say, even if you're not looking at selling, maybe this should be a consideration. I think very much along those lines, I think every business owner should pause and think about the way in which they remunerate their staff and is the remuneration structure that they currently have, that they have in place, delivering the results that they want? Can they design it better? And I think a key takeaway is don't borrow someone else's scheme. Make sure whatever you put in is appropriate for you. Every organization is unique. So don't think that what worked in one environment for you will work in another. You need to stop 
and reflect. And most importantly, make sure that the way in which you pay your staff is going to give you every possible chance of achieving your organisational goals, whether it be short, medium or long term. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I really like your comment about being careful about replicating entirely someone else's scheme or another scheme that you've seen. I think one of the issues with that is in this particular type of area, there is so much tailoring, I think, that probably is required in terms of how to make sure you're aligning the staff with the actual business and the way that it operates because businesses operate differently and have different levers. And of course, each staff member within an organization has different levers that they're able to control and be going to, I guess, be motivated by an incentive in relation to. So I guess they're all the reasons why it's important to look at your particular situation in a separate way to perhaps how you've seen a template do it. Correct. And in that vein, take your time. Don't rush it. I would say more companies get it wrong than get it right, but that's not an excuse to not do it at all. And I think it's really important that you do look to do it for the right reasons. And I suppose one of the other aspects of having a level of variable pay in someone's remuneration package, I like from a business owner's viewpoint, means that if you're having a tough year, you don't actually have to necessarily retrench people to cut your remuneration costs. Because if you took a view that 80% of someone's remuneration was fixed, 20% was based on individual and company performance. If the company's not performing, you may save 10% of the total REM that may have been available to the employee. So it means that your fixed cost is therefore lower. And as a result of that, you may not need to let go of good staff in tough times. And that's one of my key selling points that I put across to organisations because the last thing you want to do is lose good staff. It's interesting as well to think about the industries that this is applicable to. I mean, some industries, this type of approach is actually quite standard. But I guess the real challenge here is for businesses where this is not quite as standard in the industry or perhaps for the types of positions that we're talking about for key staff, it's not quite as standard. Perhaps the message is don't just discount this because you don't know many other people doing it and you don't know how to achieve it. Look at it in the context of what the impact could be in relation to your business. Well, I think the other aspect is when you're looking at trying to pull it together, look at the the total remuneration that you potentially are looking to pay someone and don't be afraid to have a a high threshold in that if all the stars align and everything goes absolutely perfectly well, that person can earn an amount of money which may fall out of a traditional band for a particular role, but it would only be under amazing circumstances that that would occur. You obviously need to make sure that you come back and do your analysis to ensure that the way in which you've structured and designed the scheme doesn't result in you paying out more money to your employees than you as the business owner have actually gained through the process. (laughs) That's a really good point, Simon. I've seen, unfortunately, it happen a lot, not with schemes I've developed, but I have seen people put schemes in place and they haven't done the correct analysis and the employees end up earning substantial amounts of money. And then when they actually look at the way in which it all flowed down to the bottom line of the organization, they actually ended up paying out 
more money to the employees as incentives than the company actually made from it. I guess it's a good point. <laughs> Be careful about what you're creating. Well, look, fabulous, Simon. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us today about this concept of strategic remuneration and how it actually works in not just preparing a business for sale and transition and not just how it can work both from the buy side and the sell side perspective, but also how it might be applicable to businesses more generally. Simon, thank you so much for coming in. I hope we can have you back one day again soon to maybe talk about some of these issues in a little bit more detail or maybe share some more knowledge you have in this area. Very much appreciate the opportunity. That'd be great. Excellent. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the program today. And look, if you, the listener, would like more information about this topic, just head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com where you'll be able to download a transcript of this podcast episode if you'd like to read it in more detail. And of course, you will also find details there of how to contact Simon Clapworthy at Start Your Earnout Now if you'd like to get in contact with him. There you'll also find details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like to discuss any legal aspects of sales or acquisitions. We also have a number of great services that help businesses both prepare for a sale or acquisition and also to help guide them through the sale and acquisition process. And look, we work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. So look, don't hesitate to book an appointment if you'd like to find out how we might be able to assist. Now look, finally, if you enjoyed what you heard today, can you please pop over to iTunes and leave us a review and make sure you've hit subscribe so you get the Deal Room podcast delivered straight to your Apple Player or your other device, whatever you're listening in on. All right. Well, thanks again for listening in. You have been listening to Joanna Oki and the Deal Room podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au.